This recording is from the Department of Education and Outdoor Learning at the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. I'm Laura and in each podcast I'll be meeting a geographical expert to discuss their research and where geography has taken them. Though as humans we know now more than ever the science behind natural phenomenon such as earthquakes and volcanic eruptions, research has proven that the role of fate, luck and fortune still plays a role in human understanding of why such events have happened. As society prepares and adapts for increasingly precarious environmental futures, could we learn from the ancient Greeks and the role of storytelling in shaping our understanding of risk and what lies ahead? In this week's episode, I'm joined by Professor Esther Eidenau from the Department of Classics and Ancient History at the University of Bristol to discuss her research into uncertain futures and ancient pasts. Esther, how did you become interested in the concept of environmental risk? So my interest comes from my classical training. So uh, I'm very interested in ancient concepts of fate and luck and fortune. And I'm particularly interested in the ways in which individuals would try and negotiate, if you like, with the uncertain future. So visits to oracles, oracle oracular sanctuaries, where you could talk to the dead or you could talk to gods or you could talk to heroes, and the ways in which people would try to understand what was going on in the world around them by consulting with unseen powers And then, uh, of course, negotiating with those powers through giving them gifts, uh, making sure that their feelings weren't offended, all of these ways of making meaning about your place in the landscape. I also worked for a little while before I became an academic uh, as um, a writer of scenarios, which are stories about the future that people use for strategy. Um, And, of course, in that uh, environment, the question of... Uh, environmental risk is a very big one because of course it it reshapes um, the world that we live in um, and people's responses and understandings of the world that we live in and so it becomes a very important force for thinking about the future uh, and planning strategy for companies and governments. How do you define environmental risk? For the purposes of this network, this project that we ran, which was a network of people coming from many different disciplines, we were trying to define it uh, as broadly as we possibly could. So we thought about it uh, as um, fundamentally the ways in which environmental transformation and disruptions are perceived and classified and then managed over time. So with risk, we're thinking about that in particular um, as having both its uh, qualitative Um, aspects as well as quantitative aspects. So we tend to think nowadays very much in terms of um, probabilities, uh, of um, uh, measuring the likelihood of something happening and that being the risk. But in fact in everyday language risk uh, conflates the idea of probability and hazard Um, And that's part of what we wanted to include was that everyday understanding of it. So um, it's about the ways in which those ideas are socially constructed as much as it is about the idea that these are hazards that may or may not occur and that likelihood can be measured. Could you just 
tell you what's meant by the term uh, socially constructed? This is not to say that a hazard is not a real objective quantity, something that will happen that will affect people's lives. But that, alongside that is how we understand, how we perceive uh, a hazard to affect us. And that's about the ways in which we as individuals perceive and understand something. But in doing so, we also are interacting with um, our local social networks, our families, people around us, but broader um, influences on us as well in the media, uh, uh, through, you know, through all different kinds of media. And all of that shapes our understanding and our perception of what that hazard is. So that is very broadly how risk um, is therefore socially constructed. It's constructed through the networks of understanding that arise literally from the society in which you live. How does the role of fate, luck and fortune play out in these wider understandings of risk? In talking about risk, one of the things that is very clear from a historical perspective on risk is that there was um, a greater explicit acknowledgement of the uncertain in various different ways. So people would think about uns un unseen forces directing the course of events. And the basis of this network, as we set out uh, to explore the idea of risk, was to ask, have those ideas uh, completely gone away? Because we now live in a scientific environment where um, things are subject to uh, scientific scrutiny and we find out the facts and we know what we know uh, and uh, in, in that world there is no room for uh, these kinds of unseen forces. But in fact, these, these questions about um, luck and uh, um, uh, fortune uh, and fate even never quite go away. Uh, and I'm thinking actually specifically of a recent uh, debate in Scientific American about the likelihood of getting cancer where the unforeseen circumstance that causes um, the cancer to emerge, the scientists had a, a huge debate, and I think it's still going on, about whether or not this could be assigned to the force of, of luck in someone's life. So the premise of this network, as we went about it, was to ask, where, how, what are we doing with those thoughts? Are they around still? Um, and if they are implicit in, in the stories that we tell uh, about um, environmental risk. How do we surface them? And what kind of force do they have? So in particular, what we're concerned about is how much agency one thinks one has in confronting uh, environmental risks, doing something about the world that we live in. If what we basically implicitly believe is that it's fated and there's nothing we can do about it, um, or to bring that perhaps more into a modern discourse, that uh, these things are in the hands of uh, unseen forces like governments and we can't do anything about it. Um, and in fact, some people are just lucky, they live in the right part of the world, and other people are unlucky, so they live in the wrong part of the world. And we wanted to see if we could surface those kinds of ideas um, and give them uh, uh, explicit names so that we could actually start thinking about how powerful they are inside narratives about environmental risk.
what do researchers mean when they say narratives? Does it mean kind of stories or does it mean something else? It does mean kind of stories. It's um, Technically, it becomes very complicated when you start looking at sort of narratological theory. But the uh, probably the easiest way I think I've found to talk about it is to think that um, if you like, the story is the what of what you're telling, but there's also the way in which you're telling it, the how of the telling. And that uh, is what narrative also encompasses. So there's a story, but there are lots of different ways that you could tell it. Uh, and what we're interested in is how those stories get told, where the emphasis lies. And if you look in a historical perspective, you can see um, very much the different ways in which, for example, with, around narratives of, of environmental risk, you can see the ways in which um, certain stories get told with an emphasis that seems very strange to us now, um, or that actually changes, that you can chart changes over time. So uh, one of our network members, Julie Sanders, who's at Newcastle, is looking at pamphlets, early modern pamphlets, um, and observes um, the ways in which risk is, in a lot of these pamphlets, uh, there's, a, there's a, a narrative that talks about God and providence and the ways in which the divine is responsible for um, extreme weather events. But then um, she also sees uh, the monetization, if you like, um, emerging from these, these stories. So stories about how people need financial support once they've been hurt and that they're not to blame for what's happened, but they need the financial support to support them through the experience um, of an environmental risk. Another example is um, Adam Burgess at uh, Kent, his work on environmental risk, where he charts the ways in which actually the term itself emerges over time, first of all in the States, in the United States in the 60s, um, with the, the idea that uh, scientific and government authorities are not to be trusted, and that there is in fact quite a lot of uncertainty. Um, and one of our projects um, that we've put uh, as coming out of this is to think about, for example, Rachel Carson's Silent Spring and the ways in which she changes the narrative by introducing a question about the authority that is telling, you know, what we can actually know and what we can actually experience uh, about the landscape around us. So you've mentioned a few examples there, um, particularly around hazards then. How have hazards been constructed by particular narratives historically, and do you have any examples? So particularly, again, I'd go back to um, Rachel Carson's Silent Spring is a very, very good example. But one of the things that kept emerging from our project was the ways in which narratives in the public eye, particularly in the media, are constructed around ideas of blame. Um, and Jonathan Wolfe, who's uh, uh, at Oxford, a philosopher at Oxford, has uh, had experience of working with companies around the question of what to do with these discourses around risks that may seem, or hazards, that, that seem very likely to happen largely because they, they've happened very recently, so they're in the public eye. And the organisation uh, that is being held to account, feeling that they must do something. So um, these narratives uh, become very powerful in shaping responses in the way particularly in which they're amplified then through the media 
And the discourses are a discourse not of, you know, this was unfortunate or this was unlucky, but it's a discourse of somebody not having done something they should have done in order to prevent uh, a particular event from happening. Um, and that's a very powerful example. But we can jump back to other examples of hazards. I mean, from my own um, discipline, uh, looking at the ancient Greeks, narratives around uh, hazards in ancient Greece are particularly about interactions with the divine. Um, and there, of course, actually, in some ways, it is another question of blame. But interestingly, although you're saying to the divine, you know, what have I done? Uh, although you're saying to the divine, you know, why have you done this to me? What you're actually looking for is blame on yourself. You know, what have I done? What could I do differently? And that's an interesting construction of a, a similar urge to find an explanation, but the person who is to blame or the entity that is to blame is yourself. So um, the ways in which we now have changed that, uh, that discourse is one in which we are looking to authorities to protect ourselves uh, in some ways. So what do you think geographers can learn from these historical understandings of, I guess, quite contemporary terms such as risk and resilience and hazards? I think looking backwards through time can give us a perspective that allows us to understand a little bit more that not all risk perspectives are going to be the same, that um, we may be able to quantify, but that perceptions of risk don't work according to rational arguments, or not always. Um, and in fact, that's a very important uh, learning for people who are thinking about risk perception and, and risk communication, um, that people don't necessarily respond to the facts and the figures, they respond much more to feeling. Uh, and we had a number of papers, including uh, one from um, Cho Kong, who's a chief political analyst at Shell, who was talking about the ways in which feeling is a very important part of thinking about uh, risk perception. So how people frame things differently in different contexts, responding to different pressures on themselves, different experiences of the world. And a historical perspective it gives you little case studies. But of course, I mean, history goes all the way up to now. So um, we also have had uh, very recent history, historical examples. Um, Karen Henwood's work, working with people who live close to uh, a nuclear power station, the ways in which she and her team have worked analysing what people say over time shows that even at the individual level, risk perception will change according to experience. So we've, we've tried to look on a big, broad historical perspective with this project, um, but that also boils down to the individual, that individuals will over time perceive risk differently. And that qualitative approach to risk, to risk perception, is a very important part of understanding how risk works as a force. Uh, directing events uh, as much as um, uh, you know, a feeling of threat to us. Contemporarily, how does the role of fate, luck and fortune shape hazards and risk? And kind of thinking about, well, geographers would think about how this uh, plays out at the local, national and global scale. So again, this is about the ways in which people respond to their perception of uh, a risk and their understanding of their capacity to confront or challenge or um, work with that risk. So you could think about ways in which this affects adaptation, 
ways in, in which this affects resilience in response to risks. And one of the um, examples at the international scale uh, that came through very clearly in one of our talks um, was about the, uh, the work of Simon Gosling um, at Nottingham. And he was part of a team of people who were trying to write descriptions of the effects of climate change as neutrally as possible for use at the UN Climate Change Conference um, in Durban in 2011. And that, if you like, the very fact that they were trying to write those summaries neutrally so that everyone was on the same page is an example of the ways in which those narratives about risk um, can contain messages that are implicit about the extent to which we are capable of influencing the world around us. So surfacing these ideas of fate, luck and fortune, even if you don't call them by those names because those words seem very old-fashioned, but if you think about them as ways in which we describe our potential to change the world and our interactions with our fellow human beings, they're very powerful words indeed, they're very powerful concepts. Um, and if we're aware of them, then in turn we can do something about how we think about the world as shaped by a discourse. One of the things that we think about, or we thought about with this project, but we could have thought about more, we were, we were studying other people's narratives. And that was very interesting, but of course we're all writing narratives about the world all the time, it's part of meaning making. And of course we can write our own, and some people are doing this through writing climate fiction. And we had uh, a cli-fi writer on the project. And he was very interesting in terms of thinking about the ways in which public narratives don't necessarily allow the narratives of ordinary people to emerge. And one of the things that it would be interesting to know would be how people who are not in the public eye, who are just living their lives, all of us, how do we think about the world around us? I'm a Greek historian, so I think about the myths of the ancient Greeks and nymphs in the woods and mountains as uh, supernatural entities and rivers have character and winds have character and, and they, they're anthropomorphized. But how do other people think about the world around us? Uh, how do we imagine the world? How do we imagine it going through climate change? Do we think of it as alive? Do we think about our landscape as alive? What kinds of narratives do we tell? For more information on resources and CPD events to support geographical learning, visit www.rgs.org forward slash schools or follow us on Twitter at rgs underscore IBG schools for the latest updates. Thanks for listening.